Riverside Chats is sponsored by listeners like you. Pitch in to keep this podcast going strong, bringing you the unique perspectives, personalities, and topics you love. Click the listener support link in the podcast notes for this episode to learn more. From KIOS in Omaha, you're listening to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with former Senator and Governor Ben Nelson. I knew that was happening from time to time when I was governor. They were sending the, uh, the party leaders home packing. And I, I think it's a better system. I'm not, a, I'm not anti-partisanship. I think there are times when partisanship, though, gets in the way of good policy because it becomes about winning. Everybody has to toe the line. And that's the problem, one of the problems we have in D.C. right now in, in the Senate and in the House, too. We talk about Nelson's new book, Death of the Senate, My Front Row Seat to the Demise of the World's Greatest Deliberative Body. Stay tuned for that conversation after this break. This is the Talk of Iowa Book Club. I'm Charity Nebbe. Book clubs are fun for a lot of reasons. They're an excuse to read something new, something you might not have picked up on your own. They are a great opportunity to visit with friends. But what if you could invite the smartest, most insightful people you can think of to have a candid conversation about a great book? That's what I get to do on the Talk of Iowa Book Club, and you're invited. He really was able to convey the message in a way that gets to your heartstrings. We can really see that he is a scientist, but he's also a person who loves what he is studying. He's a scholar and a humanist, and and I think that's his greatest achievement. And then it's like, punch, punch, oh my gosh, what? So you have this like visceral, emotional connection to the poem, and it's because of the way he's linguistically playing with language Let's talk about sex, because, of course, in the original book... Um, <laughs> Stan and I have always longed for someone to say that to both of us on the radio. <laughs> A dream come true. Yeah, All right. thank you. All right. The Talk of Iowa Book Club podcast, coming soon from Iowa Public Radio. It's time to start reading. Welcome to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and today I'm talking with Ben Nelson, former Nebraska governor and United States senator whose new book is Death of the Senate, My Front Row Seat to the Demise of the World's Greatest Deliberative Body. In the book, Nelson chronicles his two terms in the Senate and what he sees as the demise of the concept of collaboration and bipartisanship, leaving gridlock and a war for power in their place. He outlines how we got here and his steps for returning the Senate to a functional democratic space. Here is our conversation. You were just talking. I want to continue a little bit here because it seems interesting that your parents, you, you sort of got sort of your start, I guess, with your skills as somebody who's able to talk to opposing people with opposing viewpoints uh, through working with your parents and your family. I'm curious, what was it that made you feel like you should be, uh, you know, sort of like an arbiter of some of these ideas or get in the middle of some of it in a, in a helpful, productive way? Well, you know, I, I think I, I learned it in and. Uh, I remember that my, my, my father and my, my uncle 
uh, used to sit at the table. It would usually be a Sunday or something like that and argue about uh, the uh, the economy. And it was always uh, uh, the middleman's making all the money. And uh, neither of them was a farmer at that point in time. Uh, but the farmer uh, or, or now the processors and stuff like that, uh, they were making all the money. And, and uh, they were complaining about the middleman one day. I'm sure I was eight or seven or eight years old, I said, well, what are we complaining about? Why don't we become the middleman? And they both looked at me, and I could tell from the look on their faces, like, well, what do you know? But <laughs> but I, they then later, when I was older, they said that that probably was something they should have heard uh, and should have known themselves, you know. <laughs> but I, I, you know, I've always had uh, the willingness to, to listen to people, and particularly if they're are opposing views, uh, there always there's, there always seems like there's some common ground uh, if you can find it. And usually the opposing views, those people uh, go to their corners like in a boxing match and they, they don't come out to the middle of the ring to find an opposing view, they come out to box. And uh, I'm I'm one who says, look, let's let's find the the common ground here if we can. Not always. Sometimes there just isn't any common ground, and if you, if that's the case, uh, there's not much you can do. Yeah, but I mean, your point is you should at least try. Try yeah. absolutely. You know, I said when I was running in in uh, in 2000 for the Senate that uh, I didn't know who was going to be president. It was uh, Al Gore running against uh, uh, Bush. You know, uh, and. So I said, well, they asked me, well, what would you do? And I said, if it's, if it's President Bush or President uh, Gore, uh, I'll support the president and want to agree with the president, think the president's right. If I don't think the president's right, I won't support them, but I'm not going to obstruct. I'll try to find common ground. I'll try to, try to find some way to, to bridge a, a difference if, it, if it's possible, but I'm certainly not going to go back there and just say no all the time to either party. Well, that's, I mean, that's a good segue to your whole book is all about bringing that philosophy back. That's right. Uh, before we get into that, though, I want to start with, uh, I, have a, I wrote here a dumb question, which is mean to me, I guess, but it's one that I think I thought I had a firmer answer on, and sometimes I don't have a good one if I were trying to explain it. But why do we have a Senate? Well, I, I think the, the answer is it is the moderator of, of Congress with the, with the House without a filibuster, it's a it's a slam dunk vote. If you've got the majority, uh, generally you can have enough votes to to carry the day. And for a long time, uh, in in the 50s, 60s, and 70s, the Democrats had had the majority throughout m- much of that time frame. Mm-hmm. And uh, so the Senate, on the other hand, uh, has the filibuster, which I support, because what happens there is the the minority party. Uh, with a hundred hundred members, and if you've got fifty fifty as they do right now, uh, the tiebreaker is the vice president. And when I got elected in in uh, nineteen or in two thousand, uh, it, it was a fifty fifty uh, uh, Senate for a while. But the tiebreaker was was Vice President Cheney, uh, not Vice President that we have today. It was Cheney, and so uh, until Jim Jeffords from New Hampshire changed parties. Uh, then it switched over so that the Democrats uh, had had the power. But even so, if it's 51 to 49, then the rights of the 49 are protected 
because of the requirement uh, of 60 votes if if a filibuster is requested. In other words, if uh, they file a motion, then it, it raises the bar to a supermajority vote. And that's to make sure that the, the Senate isn't the same as the House, slam-dunked all the time by who, who's ever in, uh, in the majority. And uh, I think what, I'm trying to remember what, what member of the Congress, I think it was, it was Thomas Jefferson who said about the, the, the Senate that the Senate was like a saucer uh, to, to cool the coffee or the tea, it was tea at the time, to cool the tea before they, they drink. Uh, and that, um, that makes it sort of a, a, a counterbalance uh, to, the, to the House, the Senate, as uh, a counterbalance. And they're different, and their, their rules are different. So the outcomes are quite often very, very different. And I think that's, that just adds more protection against uh, you got a hundred miles. <clears throat> I say about this all the time. You don't, you don't make progress if one year you go 100 miles south and the next year you go 100 miles north. And if so if, you, if it's always slam dunk, easy, whoever has, that's likely what's going to happen. Or as they say, what goes around will come around. Uh, that, that shouldn't be the way in which you think about it. It should be about uh, minority rights so that uh, minority rights in the Senate are, are protected so it's not a runaway Senate like it can be a runaway House. It's a long explanation, but, <laughs> but it, it, it does confuse people. Why, why are they different and, and how are they different? Well, as far as the filibuster, as far as that goes, I mean, a, a complaint that people have said recently that's come up uh, is that there's this ideal with the 60-vote majority, the supermajority, that it should inspire people to work together, that it should inspire mm -hmm. because you should want right. things to happen, right? You should want there to be legislation that's going on. But if you choose to be obstructionist, if you choose to use it essentially as a way just to create gridlock, then you can complain that the majority party is not delivering on any of their promises, and then maybe that helps you get power down the line, right? Well, so, and then maybe the people decide about that uh, obstructionist uh, during the next election that they, they don't want that person back in, back in the Senate. Uh, you know, I think the people back home have a responsibility. As a matter of fact, uh, several of my colleagues that are quoted in the uh, book uh, make that point that yes, the Senate has some responsibility here to make some changes, at least uh, maybe in the manner in which the filibuster is used, so that it so it does become deliberative, uh, not obstructionist. And uh, But there's also the responsibility back home uh, to send people to, to Washington who, who promise not to obstruct, but to, to try to find solutions. Because if you don't find solutions, you don't move the country forward. Uh, the best, the best senates, uh, and the best outcomes on legislation, House Senate combination, is when things are a little bit to the left or a little bit to the right. Uh, you know, you can get elected uh, by going clear to the left or clear to the right, and that's what's happening in D.C. right now. You go clear to the far to the left as you can, or go as far right as you can, uh, but you can't lead from the, the far left or the far right. It's too extreme. So center left, center right, and that's what moderates very often are looking for uh, to find solutions that's maybe a little center left or a little center right, depending on who has the majority. Uh, and that's what deliberation is all about. 
Well, so do you find, though, that obstructionists are punished when it comes to the next election? It seems like it's going really well for them. Well, because right at the moment, that uh, can very well be the case, because uh, I think there's a a great deal of disappointment uh, that's developing because of the the, the tribal nature of things in our country today. Uh, it's it's tribal. Uh, you 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 belong to a tribe as opposed to a a sometimes a a committee of ideas. Uh, and if you belong to the tribe, you have to follow all the the rules of the of the tribe or adhere to all those rules and stuff like that. And so uh, that uh, that is not in the best interest of the country. I think uh, uh, people who think for themselves can join parties, and from time to time you carry the day, and other times you don't carry the day, uh, but uh, you belong to a party because maybe most of the rules uh, and the ideas and the principles are, are something you can live with, uh, maybe not all of them, but if, you, if you've got to have somebody belong to a group that has all the ideas that you have, and you gotta, you can't uh, find any common ground about how you administer or wh- how you deal with things, and recognize the rights of other people, um, then then you're going to be tribal, and and that doesn't get us where we need. And I'm not I'm not saying anything negative about uh, the tribes of our of, of Native Americans or anything like that. It's a if it's a different expression today uh, to to say that you're tribal if it's as opposed to. Uh, belonging to a party or or recognizing that you have uh, minority rights to protect as well as the opportunity for the majority to have the the necessary votes. Yeah, well, I mean, I mean you use the word polarized a lot in the book. And so mm-hmm. you, you've got a quote that where you talk about, you say Newt Gingrich was the godfather of the political polarization rampant today, as far as the House goes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, why is it that that, I mean, Newt Gingrich can't have been the first person to treat politics as a war for power, right? But it, why was he so effective and influential? Well, he was, he was in modern times. Uh, you know, I, I think what he... What he did is is he established sort of a a uh, benchmark for people that uh, that they they needed to uh, all adhere to uh, to their their party their the Republican Party and not to cross the aisle and uh, and support anything on the other side of the of the uh, the aisle and you know I I can understand people who want to do that as a leader. Uh, I just don't have to go along with that leader, and I chose not to go along with anything that that re- resembled that. Uh, I, I didn't see that as the why I was sent. Uh, I was sent to represent the people of Nebraska and and do what's best for the country, not what's best for a party or not for for the leader of a party or for the president, for that matter. Uh, unless I thought the president was going down the right path, and and I could support it. But so, I mean, why is it that your approach has become this sort of like rare instance, it seems like, in a lot of legislative bodies? And why was it so popular to follow the leader, to follow the Newt Gingrich example? I think people were looking for something at that time. Uh, the Democrats had, had been in control for so long and uh, uh, you had a new leader coming along with, with, with something that may not have been new, uh, but uh, it certainly to establish it the way that he did was new uh, for a long time. It was recent. That had not uh, been the way in which it had handled. You know, I also point out that that when it came to the House and the Senate, but particularly the House, uh, that uh, 
that during the Reagan era, that uh, President Reagan invited uh, Tip O'Neill and uh, Bob Michael, and I got a chance to spend time with Bob Michael and his daughter talking about uh, those experiences. He was the Republican leader. Uh, but they they sat and they, they might have had uh, uh, an adult beverage, uh, in the, but they talked about how they could work together, and they liked each other. And one of the things that I make, uh, points I make in the book, is if, if you like your your colleagues, you treat each other differently, and and you treat each other with more respect and affection, uh, and that that's that can't be that can't be uh, overstated how important that is. So yeah, they they had something to talk about. It wasn't just to get a drink. It was it was a drink was sort of the uh, the opportunity to get together and talk. Uh, Bill Bill Clinton, uh, according to Trent Lott, was. Uh, even after being impeached, uh, if, if he was impeached on Friday, on Monday he was back talking to them about what we're going to do. And uh, Trent used, used to joke about the fact that he went to bed early and the phone would ring at 11 o'clock and it would be the president. And uh, Trent would say, Mr. President, you know what time it is? Yeah, Trent, I can tell time. Uh, but we, we can't wait until tomorrow. No, I can't wait until tomorrow. We've got to talk about it tonight, Trent. Uh, but they had a relationship that, that made a, a great deal of sense. Uh, and, and Trent wasn't the type that uh, said that, like uh, Gingrich, said that you had to vote. Uh, he might try to work with everybody to get the party, his uh, caucus, to support his, his leadership. But um, I was there when they didn't all the time, and uh, we crossed the aisle together and we, we did other things. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with former Senator and Governor Ben Nelson about his new book, Death of the Senate, My Front Row Seat to the Demise of the World's Greatest Deliberative Body. I mean, it, it seems like it's it's a question of how do you get to the ideal and how do you incentivize people? Because if they're not, if there is no sort of like punishment or the, I mean, just the way that our, our states are polarized where you have red states and blue states a lot of the time and you have incumbent advantage, it's almost like it doesn't matter that much what you actually do. So, I mean, even if we'd like everybody to try to be more personable, to actually try to respect each mm-hmm. other, does it have much of an impact when it comes to the next election? It seems like not really. So that, then how do you motivate people to do some of these things? Well, we have to move away from, from this red state, blue state uh, divide. Uh, it, during the last uh, uh, presidency, uh, it, 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 it became commonplace uh, the red versus the blue and it's carried over uh, so that uh, uh, whether you get COVID uh, vaccinations could depend on whether you were blue or red and and that doesn't hold because there are an awful lot of people who are who are red in their political views who are getting getting uh, vaccinations so we got to break that down to where it's it's not a there are some differences that's the, that's not the same as division that's tribal, and it's tribal now. You're part of the red tribe, or you're part of the blue tribe, uh, the blue state with a with a with a blue governor, and they are different than the governors in a red state. Well, in some respects, they've become like that, and it's been driven in part by COVID, and and a few other uh, issues that have have created that uh, divide as well. Uh, that wasn't the case when I was governor. Uh, yeah, we were a blue state. I was I was elected as a, as governor of Nebraska as a Democrat, uh, barely got elected, and um, but I got reelected seventy seventy four to twenty six 
because I didn't uh, play like a blue person 100% of the time because that's not the way I am. And I was there elected to be governor of all Nebraska. It's not just those who voted for me. Uh, and I, I set out to do that and with the theme of one Nebraska, that we're all one Nebraska. We're not east, west, north, south, rural, urban. We're one Nebraska. If, if, if it's not good for some Nebraskans, it's not going to be good for all Nebraskans. It's got to find a way to, to make it work. And that's the same sense of being a family to the extent that you can be a uh, two, two million population family. But but that's that's what you have to do. And that that's possible to move away from being driven by whether you're from a blue state or a red state. Um, you know, I, I just don't think that's a, that that kind of a divide makes any sense. It's certainly not in the best interest of our country. Well, I mean, that promise then, the one Nebraska, it's fairly similar to Barack Obama's initial message, right? There are no red states or blue states. Right. But it didn't land in a way that seemed like uh, everybody embraced the thing that you would want them to embrace. You have the Tea Party movement. You've got a lot of oh, destruction, yeah, yeah. just a lot of. So I mean, why is it that that message coming from Obama didn't land? Um, I, I think there are a lot of a lot of reasons that uh, that an undercurrent, uh, the first uh, black president, uh, certainly I think had a had an impact with some people. Uh, in some cases, it was a positive impact. Uh, people were delighted to to uh, have that uh, that change uh, coming. Uh, I think that was the case. I think uh, he was new. Uh, he was young. And I, I think you had uh, somebody say, uh, the, the leader of the Republican caucus, uh, Mitch McConnell, uh, say his number one goal, he didn't say his caucus, his number one goal, he said his number one goal was to be sure that, uh, that Obama didn't get a second term. And so if, if that's the, the watermark that's set, uh, you can see why uh, there would be a lot of an, uh, anti-Obama sentiment at least within the caucus, perhaps, uh, maybe with respect to his ideas, but uh, but it certainly wasn't a, a handshake uh, coming in the door. Again, I mean, I guess there's sort of is the implication there then what motivates the Tea Party is is it power? Is there? I mean, it, it's power in a lot of different forms, right? In that you sure. can you can harness power, you can have power to do what you want. But it's, I think with the Tea Party, there's kind of this interesting element yeah. of they want power, but also they're against the government doing things in some ways too, right? So it's sort of like power to dismantle the government, not power to do things with the government, with certain exceptions. But what do you? What, I mean, what was the motivation of the Tea Party as far as I think concerned? the Tea Party uh, reacted to the the Great Recession. And the efforts to try to uh, come out of the, the, the Great Recession, uh, even before uh, Obama took uh, uh, office uh, in the in in the in the fall, uh, then uh, there there was TARP was was uh, enacted uh, across the. Uh, it was cross party lines. It was the thing to do. We had, we had Ben Bernanke, and we had uh, all the others coming into us and saying, "You've got to do this uh, because if we don't do it, the consequences are going to be worse." I called uh, Warren Buffett and I said, "What do you think about TARP?" He says, "Well, I don't, I don't, I don't know if it's the answer, but I can tell you this: doing nothing is not the answer. Something has to be done." So, as we move forward with that, then you had the bailout of uh, General Motors. And, uh, and the Tea Party types, uh, 
said, well, you just let it go into bankruptcy. If they'd let it go into bankruptcy, if we'd let it go into bankruptcy at the time, we hadn't bailed it out. We made money doing that, by the way, when we sold, resold the stock back to them. Uh, so it was, a, it was a good investment, but that wasn't our goal. Our goal was to make, was goal, that was a good goal, but that, our number one goal was to make sure they didn't go uh, upside down. Uh, if they'd gone into bankruptcy, they'd still be, a, they'd still be in bankruptcy right, right now because all the, the, the tons of lawyers that would have come in and trying to divide it up, it would have been a, there wouldn't even been a carcass left at the end of the, the effort. So you had to do what you had to do. And then a stimulus package. I didn't hear the Tea Party uh, ranting and raving about uh, uh, Trump's effort at a stimulus package or that he was uh, ra- raising $3 trillion and, and, and the like, but they were shocked at the time. And then they didn't like the, the, the stimulus package, even though we tried to pare it down and, and do it in a way that made sense. Uh, I worked together and brought on board uh, Susan Collins and, 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 uh, and, and Arlen Specter and Olympia Snow. from uh, And so there were three Republicans that would work with Joe Lieberman and me, and we put together something that uh, uh, was, was smaller than the, than the White House wanted, smaller than the Democrat uh, caucus wanted, uh, larger than what the Republicans wanted, but it was it was if you were if there is such a thing, it was a sweet spot where we we got enough votes to get it done, and that sometimes is what it boils down to. But but the Tea Party was in such shock about it, and then on top of that, now we go with uh, with the Affordable Care Act mm-hmm. and more spending, more spending, and they just thought it was uh, going the wrong direction, and just they were wrong, they were anti everything, including the new president. Uh, and Congress uh, doing anything to try to get us out of the out of the ditch that we were in, called the Great Recession, which we got out of, by the way, and uh, moved forward, moved the country forward uh, for seven more years uh, afterwards. Well, yeah, I mean, it's it, it seems like something where you your philosophy of listening to constituents, of trying to do th- do something that they want. Of talking to people across the aisle, it, it's sort of like that. That goes along with the basic concept, the basic philosophy of why we have the Senate, of what America is supposed to be doing. Right? It's supposed to be legislating, listening, representing. And when you have people who don't have that as a goal, I guess that's where you get into this problem. And the fact that that mm-hmm. it's been very successful to not try to adhere to the initial concept of America, really, right? To just sort of like be an obstructionist and that's fine, mm-hmm. or to just want power, or to just be there kind of like for the cameras. I know you're, you're critical of that too, but it, it works really well. And I guess, how do you, how do you keep some optimism that it, we can dig ourselves out of that hole? Well, we have to. Uh, that's because we have to. I, I always think that when you have to do something, you're more likely uh, to do it. Uh, I think People back home have to ask questions about who they send to Washington, about are you going to go and try to work across the aisle where you can, not not be across the aisle all the time, but where you can. can are you going to try to find uh, common ground? Uh, or, you, or, you just, or do you promise to go and, and be um, just partisan? Uh, there, are, there are people who are going to promise to be partisan, promise to go back there and obstruct. Uh, there, there are some back there like that. I'm not going to start naming them because it'll take a little while to name a few of them. But the, uh, uh, they're there and they do that, and and that's not in the best interest uh, of the country, uh, I don't think. And when when 
people back home begin to ask the question of why uh, we can't why we can't get something done in Washington, uh, why we can't take care of infrastructure, uh, and what's holding it up, uh, and what uh, what would it take to to change it? Take people talking to one another and finding solutions that are uh, that are common common ground. So when people begin to understand that back home and really insist on it, then they'll start sending people back to Washington uh, or it will continue in some cases to send people to Washington who are willing to cross the aisle on those occasions where it's, where it's absolutely essential for the country. A thing that scares me about the, the attempt to get to common ground is that it seems like it's easier and easier for people to not even have kind of a shared reality that they sure. live in. Sure. And so, you know, like we're in a situation where you've got, I don't know, like pe- some people are in the QAnon world and some people are in, you know, the MSNBC, Fox, whatever world. And so I, I, I find that there's sort of like, I don't know how you get people to even agree on what's happening when it's not in their interest to do that. But so I, I, I think I'm, I'm trying to trace some of that. Mm-hmm. So where does that come from? And I don't know. Uh, somebody was somebody was Jake Cole had an interesting comment where he was talking about. Uh, did you watch the Errol Morris documentary about Donald Rumsfeld? I, I didn't. You didn't. Oh, well, you you know you knew yeah. Rumsfeld. So. Oh yeah, I know. I, I I didn't call him Rummy like uh, others did. <laughs> but yeah, we had a we had a good uh, working relationship. Uh, uh, he uh, uh, we we were on a first name basis with each other. Well, and he so in the in the documentary, what's interesting is basically Errol Morris is just trying to get Rumsfeld to talk about the war on terror, and Errol Morris is critical of it and where it went and how they went about it. And Rumsfeld, uh, he's he's fascinating to watch, even though he's not ever admitting that he did anything wrong. But Mm -hmm. the the quote here that I think is interesting that has some uh, connection is, Errol Morris's attempt to cage Rumsfeld into some kind of admission of guilt instead created the blueprint for modern political refusal to even acknowledge facts, much less confess regret, Mm -hmm. which... You know, whether you agree about that specifically about Rumsfeld or not, I, I think we do have a real problem of acknowledging facts, and I don't know sure. what you do with that. Well, that is tough. I mean, uh, it was, uh, uh, it was uh, uh, Daniel Patrick Moynihan, from the senator from New York, that uh, I first heard it from uh, when he said, uh, everybody's entitled to their own opinion, just not their own set of facts. So that, that's the same point. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you can have alternative facts... Uh, and you can't agree on a common set of facts, it's pretty hard to, to achieve anything. Uh, so I think, I think this business of everybody's entitled to their own set of facts now as alternative facts. I think you can discuss the differences in the facts. I think these are the important facts. Somebody else thinks these are the important facts. But at the end of the day, we better establish what, what the facts are. Uh, the world is not flat. Now, if somebody thinks that the world is flat and that's a fact, uh, you know, that is not something that's, that's ever uh, going to change. If the world is not flat, it's not going to get flat. And it's a hard, you've raised a good point, because that makes it very difficult for, for common ground if you can't at least agree on what the facts are, what, is, what the goal is that you're trying to achieve, and, and look for ways to go about doing it. Because if you can't do that, uh, then there is no, no common ground. There is no uh, movement forward. I don't think things are so bad that 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 will. There's a bit of that right now for certain people. There's no doubt about it. Uh, when when 
when Senator Ron Johnson from Wisconsin says that they, they were all patriots there on, on January 6th, and he thinks those are the facts, I mean, I know there are people who think those are the facts. I can't imagine that, that those are the facts, or at least it's not, in my mind, it's not factual that that is the way that, that this country behaves uh, as a democracy with a constitution. You don't take the law into your own hands. You don't t try to go and do what was attempted to do, and we understand what they wanted to do. However, we, we, we believe they wanted to not only do mayhem to, to members that they could have captured at the time, but they wanted to stop the process, which would have put us into a constitutional crisis uh, if, if, if the Constitution wasn't adhered to, if the votes weren't counted and assessed and established the way we're supposed to under the Constitution. Fortunately, they came back and did it. The vice president stood tall and did it against uh, uh, the president's uh, wishes. So, uh, but we will come through that ultimately. It will take some time for people to begin to get back uh, to understand that we have a common set of facts or that that is not how this country behaves and that it's not okay uh, to do what they did, uh, no matter how well-intentioned some of them were. I'm talking today with Ben Nelson, former senator and governor, about his new book, Death of the Senate, My Front Row Seat to the Demise of the World's Greatest Deliberative Body. Let us know what you think. Follow Riverside Chats on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram. We'll continue my conversation with Ben Nelson after this break. Welcome to Back Row Center, a podcast from Filmstreams, an art house organization in Omaha, Nebraska. I'm Filmstream's Communications Director, Patrick Kinney, and I'm joined by Dana Ryan, Filmstream's Development Manager, and Diana Martinez, Filmstream's Artistic Director. Dana, will you tell us more about what to expect from Back Row Center? Every month, the three of us will come together to talk about what's happening at Filmstream's and in the larger film world. Our theaters are places where we use film to put different art forms in conversation with each other and springboard important discussions about identity, politics, and art with moviegoers of all ages. We're excited to bring these conversations to you in a brand new format and hopefully have some fun in the process. As many of you may know, we've been going nonstop since our closure in March due to coronavirus. From our slate of virtual events and Q&As to weekly new releases available on our site, we're excited for a more personal way to bring you all in closer to the heart of our organization by hearing straight from the people behind the scenes. You'll get to know the three of us, as well as the rest of the Filmstream's crew, as this podcast develops. Even though we're closed, we still believe in the power of film as a collective, communal experience. So subscribe to the podcast through whichever platform you listen, and we encourage you to tell us your thoughts about future topics, the films we talk about, and stuff we need to watch through our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. We're at Filmstreams everywhere. Until next time, we'll see you in the best seats in the house, Back Row Center. And welcome back to Riverside Chats. I'm Tom Noblock, and I've been doing this show for a little while now. Check out the backlog of Riverside Chats episodes wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or whatever your favorite app is. I'm talking with Ben Nelson about bipartisanship, functional democracy, and how to push past the phase of American gridlock that has become our normal. Nelson's new book, Death of the Senate, My Front Row Seat to the Demise of the World's Greatest Deliberative Body, is available now wherever you get books. Here's the rest of our conversation. Do you have a theory on why or when it started that the different realities and people living with their own set of facts became so prominent? I think the, the Tea Party 
started that kind of thinking that, uh, uh, you know, it, it turned away from Democrats and Republicans necessarily, although the, Demo- the Republicans took over the party, the Tea Party, uh, and, and used it for their own advantage where they could. Uh, but, the tea, but the Tea Party uh, changed the, some of the language uh, that for the for for basically Republicans, but Democrats too. If you don't agree with us, we're going to get somebody to run in the primary against you next time. So they they turned the word primary into a verb for the first time that I'd ever heard it used that way. Primary scare people, uh, and and it just became the loud crowd. And the loudest crowd doesn't ne- the loudest voice doesn't necessarily uh, uh, make it right. Uh, for what that person is doing just because they're a loud voice. Sometimes the quietest voice is the one you should listen to because it might be the voice that's making most sense. But they got louder and louder, and uh, and people then uh, turned against uh, uh, others. Uh, and, and the Trump, the election of Trump, uh, made it... Uh, uh, fashionable, at least, uh, to to say there are alternative facts. You know, I say in the book, the, we're learning to live with alternative facts, alternative lifestyles, and uh, an alternative this, alternative that. Well, my book's about an alternative recollection. Uh, my recollection, hope, hopefully, wasn't too alternative. You know, but but I think that just sort of grew where people became, if not. Uh, uh, became sophists about certain things, not just skeptics, but sophists about the, and turning against the government. And, uh, and, and, and it became more fashionable to be against the government. You don't have to, to be a, an anarchist to be uh, questioning whether your government's doing the right thing or not. But anarchy was starting, is, is on the verge of taking over with, uh, with January 6th. Fortunately, the, the last time that they, they got together here on the 19th, I think, or the 18th, I think it was, uh, on a Saturday, uh, they, um, um, it was peaceful and, it, and nothing happened. Now, the fact that they saw all the, all the uh, uh, gate or all the fences go up again, probably better, better protected for the, uh, for the people in the, in, in the capital, uh, might have had something to do with it as well. But I, I think it just people have gotten to the point where they, they're so frustrated and it's blue and it's red and it's this and it's that and it's okay not to be the United States of America. And that's, that's a very, very scary uh, but a slippery slope uh, for all of us ultimately. It seemed like on the night of January 6th, uh, I remember staying up late, watching the news, watching as they started to come back and give speeches. That felt like kind of a turning point away from a lot of what you're diagnosing as problems with our system, where there was a lot of lip service. People like Lindsey Graham said, yeah. you know, I'm done with this. It's yeah. over. And that didn't last very long. And does it surprise you, I guess, that that didn't last long and that also Donald Trump is still incredibly popular in the Republican polls? Well, I said he'd be a pain in the, you know, a royal one. <laughs> Uh, uh, predicted that in my book before before he was out of office. Uh, you know, uh, I I think you're right. I th- I think that uh, uh, we're 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 facing a, an era now where it's more fashionable to be anti than it is to be pro, and uh, it's easy to be uh, anti a government because the government's always doing something that you don't necessarily like. Uh, now that 
they also all all the time are doing things that are necessary for you uh, to be able to exist uh, in America. So if you if you keep your focus on what you don't like, uh, then you can be anti-government. And I think that's probably where where thing people are going. They they think about things they don't like about it. Uh, uh, they think about what they don't like about uh, their their elected official, and so uh, it's it's okay for in Michigan for a group of people up there decide they're gonna they're gonna go and capture their their governor, and do their governor in, uh, and and stuff like that. It's, I don't think the large majority of people, when asked that question, uh, would uh, would agree that it's okay, but I think there's a sizable minority. And it's sizable uh, who think that it is. Do you think, I mean, Mitch McConnell as sort of the person who takes over probably the, the Newt Gingrich role, but for the Senate, uh, do you think that if Mitch McConnell, the one day that he no longer is in charge of the party, is no longer sort of guiding it with his power play, do you think that things change? Do you think, is, that, is there a vacuum where somebody will come in and just replace it with similar tactics, or is he kind of singular? Well, it's possible, but if you go back before uh, McConnell, uh, you had uh, Bill Frist uh, from Tennessee and Trent Lott, and they were not that way. Uh, I think there was it was starting to trend a little bit toward where McConnell uh, picked up, with uh, Bill Frist wanting to impose the uh, the nuclear option, uh, eliminate the uh, filibuster on on uh, judicial nominees, which. Harry Reid opened the door a bit on, at least a jar, and McConnell then ultimately did it. Uh, we stopped it uh, with the Gang of 14 uh, by making it unnecessary for to impose the nuclear option, get rid of the filibuster, lower the uh, level down to 50 or a majority vote, uh, as opposed to the supermajority vote of 60. It was it was probably starting with with Frist's frustration of not being able to get judges up or down votes. And uh, so then that's when he said, well, we'll come up with a nuclear option. And a group of us, seven Democrats and seven Republicans, came together and said it's not necessary. We will agree uh, not to impose the 60-vote threshold on every judicial nominee. And that means we will give, except in extraordinary circumstances, simple up or down vote on judicial nominees as it should be except in extraordinary circumstances so we carved out an exception for ourselves in the in the book I, I pointed out it was in the group of 14 we're all together and and we've agreed to to do this to come together and and vote not to have a 60 vote threshold limit it to up or down votes uh, and they said, well, yeah, but do we want to do it on everybody all the time? Do we have to do it when we agreed? Is, is there any exception? I said, well, come up with except in extraordinary circumstances. Yeah, everybody said, yeah, that, that probably makes sense. I said, well, if you've got a, a nominee that is so bad it drains all the blood from your head, you, you're going you're gonna to vote for cloture. I mean, you're going you're gonna to vote to raise the threshold. Uh, what we really need to do, and we need to do it badly, is start going back to 
bringing on judicial nominees, particularly the Supreme Court, who are in the mainstream of judicial thought, as opposed to trying to find those that are as far right as possible or far left as possible and put them on the bench. So anyway, in that sense, uh, we said, okay, extraordinary circumstances. That, that'll excuse somebody to vote for a filibuster. So uh, John McCain, who is my my co-chair of, of the, the group, he was chair of the Republicans. I chaired the Democrats, brought it together. Uh, he said, wait, this this extraordinary circumstance, is that, is that like the, the test for pornography? Uh, you know it when you see it? I said, well, uh, it's comparable. <laughs> but everybody in the room uh, got a big chuckle out of that. It was a good group. We teased each other. Uh, we could talk straight to one another. We, we didn't let staff in the room. I've never been in a meeting in Washington among senators before where staff has been excluded so that we didn't have the word get out what we're talking about. We could talk about we change our minds the next meeting, and we, we had free exchange of ideas. That's one of the things that's missing there because if you can't cross the aisle, you can't get a gang together. And if you can't get a gang together, you can't, you can't have the opportunity to just be one-on-one, two-on-two, to talk freely uh, among one another. Well, a question that's kind of adjacent to that that comes up a lot in this show is we talk about political parties in general. And certainly in a really polarized age, it's hard to see that the parties do more good than harm as opposed to a system of free-for-all, independent thinkers. So, I mean, do you think that that there is something advantage or good, beneficial to our system about having two dominant parties? I could make the argument that that's not the case uh, based on Nebraska's unicameral. Uh, which is uh, unicameral and uh, and officially a nonpartisan body because people don't run on the basis of party. Uh, It's a plurality in the election. Mm -hmm. So it could be all Republicans, it could be all Democrats, it could be some of each, and and, and the the top two vote-getters after the primary are are elected in the general election. So I can make a case for it. Uh, I can make a case for it. But... But the United States is a bit different in that uh, we have uh, uh, the opportunity to have a, a Senate and a, uh, uh, a House, and we're not going to go back. We're not going to go to a unicameral uh, in in the United States. It's not going to happen. You're gonna have, we're going to have to learn to live with what we have. But I can sure make an argument for it. And it's one of the reasons that that uh, the late Senator George W. Norris from my hometown of McCook. Uh, and whose house is three doors away from my my house, uh, still there. Uh, he 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 came to Nebraska and he came up with the notion and supported and pushed for a unicameral, because he didn't like the the Senate and House the way in which they did their legislation. Each passed a bill and then it went to a conference committee. And then the conference committee could make all kinds of adjustments, and then it would go back to the House to vote, be voted on back to the Senate. So he didn't like the uh, conference committee. I described a conference committee back there as equivalent of a, a fumble and a, and a pileup, and the ball changes hands four or five times before the, the whistle's blown. Uh, that was the that way was I looked at conference committees. So I, I understood his frustration with the conference committee system, but I was probably the only one that could understand it because I was the only one that that had any experience with a unicameral where you don't have conference committees between the House and the Senate. I didn't like the conference committee system either. (laughs) 
Well, talking about Nebraska in general, I think maybe we could segue to that as we get toward the end of our time here, which is uh, the unicameral seems like a good concept, but also there's some pushback to actually embracing the fullness of what it means to not be tied to parties. I think there are a lot of people in the unicameral who act in a partisan manner. Do you feel like it's working, unicameral? Well, I think if, you know, there, there are certain influences on it uh, that, uh, that have pushed it uh, more towards partisanship. You know, the, the governor's been active in, in campaigning and contributed to campaigns and stuff like that. I didn't do that. I did, I did in one case. One of my uh, law school classmates uh, was running, and I, I supported him. And, uh, but, you know, when I was there, if the party people came in to try to influence the, some of the, the members of their party, they were told to go home. Now, I don't want that. I'm not here for that reason. I didn't run as a Republican, or I didn't run as a Democrat. Now, leave us alone. We, we work here differently. I knew that was happening from time to time when I was governor, that they were, they were sending the, uh, the party leaders home packing. And I, I think it's a better system. I'm not, a, I'm not anti-partisanship. I think there are times when partisanship, though, gets in the way of good policy because it becomes about winning Everybody has to toe the line, and that's the problem. One of the problems we have in D.C. right now in in the Senate and in the House too. If you're just joining us, I'm talking today with Ben Nelson about his new book, Death of the Senate: My Front Row Seat to the Demise of the World's Greatest Deliberative Body, which is available wherever you get books. I thought it was interesting that you in the book there's sort of a little origin story for Pete Ricketts. Uh, he does pop up. Uh, essentially that the Bush administration wanted a yes man, right? And so Karl Rove personally seeks out Ricketts. Well, I don't think I said a yes man. Well, okay, that's, that's me editorializing okay, a little yeah, bit. That's I what I said, heard. I, but, but, yeah, they, uh, Karl Rove came back out uh, to Nebraska to find somebody to run against me after I'd been a reliable uh, uh, partner uh, in, in uh, finding solutions when things were stuck. Uh, on a partisan basis, but you know that's Karl Rove. Uh, he's he's a hatchet man, and he he has been, he is, and he always will be. Well, so him. I mean, why do, why do you think he picked Pete Ricketts specifically to be your opponent? Well, I don't know. Maybe because he was available. He's available, and I mean, you you talk in the book and one of your solutions for politics essentially as well about money, right? And so it seems to me that it's sort of intuitive to say that billionaires representing the average person, there's a little bit of a disconnect there. Not to say, you know, you couldn't necessarily do well, but people with money have advantages absolutely in our political system and where money's coming from, who gets it, how that influences how they act. Do you think there's a way to take money out of politics, at least improve the system? It's the most important thing that we can do because uh, the dark money, uh, substantial sums of money, uh, I think they are degrading. Uh, public service, uh, because it, when when you have somebody run against you like I did in 2006, it could spend 10 million uh, more of their own money to run against you. Uh, you you have to go out and raise uh, some appropriate amount to be able to withstand the challenge that 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 happens. Money does matter uh, in elections. It it does not always, but. It, but it matters, not 100%, but it does matter. And the more money matters more at times because of, of the high cost of campaigning. Uh, so uh, you, it's, it's not like 
mutual disarmament, uh, but there has to be some restrictions. And the the Citizens United case decided by the Supreme Court probably will not be uh, stricken down by this uh, this court. And however long this court will be this court, I don't know, 40 years, 30 years, uh, won't be stricken down. I don't believe. I hope it is, but I don't expect that to happen. And as, and as long as it is there and money becomes the, the major influencer on um, on campaigns, uh, I'm telling you, it's 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 going to be more of the same. It's not it, it 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 will be one factor that we have to overcome, and people do overcome it. Not everybody's driven by the money. Uh, they you know they do things because it's the right thing to do, not because they're influenced by how much support they got uh, in in the last election. So it isn't, but it's it's enough of an influencer that uh, it has to be addressed. Well, it makes me feel good that you still have some optimism that people who aren't in it for money or power can change things, that we can get back to something that's actually collaborative where people talk, where there's an exchange of ideas. So I, I'm really grateful that you got to uh, that you came on the show to talk to me about some of this. It's been very fun. Uh, before I do let you go, do you have any events you're doing uh, about the book or anything well, you want to plug? Well, I have. I've... I've uh I've done. Uh, I was in McCook over the weekend on my hometown, and uh, had a book signing out there, and it was well attended. And uh, fortunately, I have friends out there, and I have relatives out there. That 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 added to the crowd. Uh, and I've, uh, I've I've done other book signings, and I'm, next week I'm going to be in D.C. for 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 business. And while I'm there, I'm going to have a. Uh, uh, a book signing and next Wednesday would be large, a lot of my former staffers and, and friends and others uh, will get together and that should be a fun time and uh, sign some books and stuff like that so uh, yeah it's, it's it's on the market you can get it uh, through Amazon uh, or the, the bookstores here in town uh, Barnes and Noble and uh, of course uh, uh, the bookworm so uh, and down, down in Lincoln it's uh, Fancies and Fitch that uh, is available as well so it's a read that I'd like to have people uh, pay attention to uh, they can say no they may not like it uh, I tried to write it in a way that uh, uh, was my experiences uh, if I could have written it in a third person I would have but uh, but it's my experiences, so I have to write it about about myself, and it's not something that uh, that I really expected to to do when I started writing the book. But there wasn't any other way to 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 do it. Well, I really appreciate it. I think it's a great book, and thanks for talking to me. Thank you. Appreciate it. Riverside Chance is a production of KIOS 91.5 FM, Omaha Public Radio. The show is produced and edited by Courtney Bierman. Our original music is written and performed by the Real Zebos. Our artwork is done by Ben Matukowitz. Remember, you can find the backlog of all of these conversations wherever you get podcasts. Subscribe today, and please leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening. I'm Tom Novak.